I invite you all to open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We continue a series within the Gospel of Mark called Bad Religion or Dangerous Religion. I like Bad Religion because it's an 80s band. Um, Bad Religion. And the reason I'm slowing down here in Mark chapter 7, maybe you're perceiving that, is because I think Mark chapter 7 is meant to be carefully considered. The reason I think that is because it is the longest of all the conflict speeches that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Mark. It seems to be a a turning point in the blindness of the disciples as their eyes begin to slowly open, but dullness still reigns. And it seems to be a point of increasing hostility towards uh, Jesus from the religious leaders of the day. And so I think in, in Mark 7, we find a significant point in this gospel account to help us understand why he wrote and where he's going. I also find in it, as I told you last week, tremendous relevance to flawed approaches to human religion that we're tempted with today. Uh, J.C. Rao said that Pharisees are a perennial problem. In other words, just because there's not some Judaistic sect among us uh, concerned about washing of hands, they've found their replacement generation after generation. And the danger of, of religion that's more concerned about upholding tradition and authority and the status quo fills churches today and perpetuates itself, a cottage industry kind of a thing where by doing what they've always done, these religious organizations have taken the place of the purity of the word and the work of the spirit of God. And it's a genuine threat even in our church. No church is safe from this kind of religion. No amount of fastidiousness can guard you from your religion turning bad because the only solution to bad religion is is grace. It's the actual grace of God being the driving force and engine of religion. So that's not a human institution uh, perpetuating tradition, but it's a divine work that he does in the heart of man by his grace. And so we began to look at, at this exchange that Jesus has with the Pharisees over the issue of, of having dirty hands, of, of not doing the rituals that the Pharisees did. The disciples were slacking on that, apparently. Jesus' followers weren't being fastidious about the rituals and the traditions that the elders had done. And that's really the theme of these opening verses of chapter 7. One of the key words is that word tradition. 
tradition, uh, paradosis. In verse 3, you see it, chapter 7, verse 3, thus observing the traditions of the elders. Verse 5, what do your disciples not walk? Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Verse 8, you hold on to the tradition of men in order to keep your tradition, verse 9 and verse 13, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition. It's that word tradition that drove us to where we are now, starting in verse 14, and I will want to look at all the way through verse 23. So I'll try to spend a minute recapping once we're into it of verses 1 through 13 to help you understand that this really does flow into this middle section. And then next week, we'll look at the example that is related to what Jesus has been talking about. How do you live this out? Well, the answer is in verses 24 through 37 with that Syrophoenician woman. And so intentionally, in three parts, we're looking at at bad religion and its horrifying consequences as a danger to your soul if God is not at the center of true religion and the heart is not what's being examined. So that's what this is all about. Let's begin by reading chapter 7, verse 14 through 23. Jesus had just said in verse 13, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Verse 14. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, but it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. This is the very word of the living God. Well, if the key word to verses 1 through 13 is the word tradition, the word that guides us through verses 14 through 23 is that concept of defilement. It's not the first time we've heard the word defiled in this passage because 
the concept of uncleanness was the concern that the Pharisees brought to Jesus because his disciples weren't doing the ritual of hand washing before their meals. We talked about last week, this wasn't a hygienic concern brought in by Fauci and the Purell advocates. This is the kind of concern that had to do with a religious ritual. It wasn't hand washing, scrub to the elbows kind of a washing, but a cupping of water and a a dropping that water through the hand, most likely. Uh, Something that symbolized the cleaning, symbolized the the devotion that this worshiper had to making sure that before he ate, he was consecrated before God. And it wasn't just about food. You noticed in uh, in verses 1 through 13, it was other things, vessels inside the house, cups and pitchers and copper pots, and then even things like beds had to be uh, washed with a kind of ritual washing. Uh, And This isn't to talk about the the cleanliness of the Pharisees, but their fastidiousness to do external rituals, to put what they called a fence around the law. This fence around the law, the Torah is the law, it's the, the Old Testament regulations that God gave to Israel. The Pharisees helped build a fence around the law, and this would become the Mishnah. I talked about this last week as well. It was a a reader's guide to the Old Testament, a rabbi's thoughts on how you should do all the things God tells you to do. It gets down to the specifics, to the nitty-gritty. It's the kind of stuff like, okay, the Bible says not to work on the Sabbath, so what does that mean? And so the Mishnah will go on for chapters and chapters telling you exactly what that means. And the intention wasn't to build a human-centered religion. The intention wasn't to divorce this from the heart. I believe the intention of the rabbis was to bring clarity to the people. It was to interpret and understand. But what happened is that their interpretation first became essential to understanding the scriptures. So here's interpretation, holding up the scriptures. And then it became imperative to understand what the rabbi said alongside of scripture. But by the time of Jesus's day, the external manifestations, the interpretations, the extra biblical rules, the Mishnah, had, which hadn't been completely codified yet, but was still in the form of oral tradition, had taken over for the scriptures. And some rabbis had even begun to say it was not just as important, but more important than the scriptures. And so this is where Jesus is coming into a scene like this with rituals and tradition, 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 guiding the people of the day so that the most religious people of Jesus's day were obviously the ones most devoted to God because the way they showed that was through external realities. It was stuff that they did. All of their traditions, all of their rituals, their washings, as they fastidiously observed this very public kind of protocol, they became the ones who were the fence around the law of God. They became the ones who enforced this on other people. And so the fact that they brought this concern in verse 5 to Jesus, saying, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands, was something that the people of Israel had heard for generations now. 
And the concerns that Jesus raises, and that's probably the lightest possible way to say uh, when Jesus looks right at them and says, rightly did Isaiah, you know, the prophet Isaiah, prophesy of you, you hypocrites. Uh, So I don't know if Jesus was in an exchange there or if that's more of a, I mean, that's pretty strong. I think a full rebuke. He called them hypocrites. He said, Isaiah was thinking of you when he wrote that you neglect the commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. In vain you worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. And so Jesus' concern was threefold. It was hypocrisy. These people were fakes. They were phonies. They wore a mask. It was all about what the appearance of things was and not what was inside the heart. It was lips instead of heart. It was feigned devotion to God instead of true heartfelt affection for God. So hypocrisy was his number one concern. His second concern had to do with the reality of their heart being far from God. Their hearts were set on themselves, on their rules. There was no love. There was no compassion. And it was a reminder from Jesus to his disciples, to the Pharisees, and to the crowds that God cares about your heart. He wants your heart. It's a reminder to all of us as religious people showing up to church every Sunday that it's easy to come to church with everything but your heart. God is not satisfied that your buns are in the chair, that your body is here. It would be hard to be here in a disembodied way anyway. But that's not what God wants when you come to church. He wants your heart. He he wants your heart opened up in this place. That you come here not to be seen or to see, but you come here with a concern for the innermost part of yourself, knowing that you come to bring your heart to God. More on the heart in the verses that we're looking at today. The third concern Jesus had in verses 1 through 13 wasn't just hypocrisy and the the nature of their heart being far from God, but it was the place of tradition, coming over God's word, being more important than God's word. And instead of this supplemental, and and then because of it becoming equal, and now it's become promoted. And he gave the example of their Corbin vow. I can't help my parents because I'm so religious. I made this vow to give all my stuff to God. So because I I hold my vows tightly as all true Jews would, I can't help you, mom and dad, though you've fallen on hard times. And Jesus indicts them because their holiness is fake and fraudulent because the externals have overtaken all matters of the heart. What a tragedy to see Israel so denigrated in their religion, a religion entrusted to them by God himself, a word given to the people as stewards to be a light to the Gentiles, angelic guidance, patriarchs with a focus on walking with Yahweh, prophets foretelling, and all that they got out of that had come to, hey, did you do the proper washing of the cup and kettle in the ritual? I mean, that's where you go from the Red Sea to that, to tinking around in the kitchen with a pot, making sure it's got the right ritual sprinkle on it. 
You think that's why God appeared in a cloud and in fire to lead his people? Do you think that's why he had Ezekiel shave his head and renounce that the glory of God had left the temple? Do you think that's the end of of Judaism, of the, the work of God and the covenants with Israel? Do you think that's why he's sending the Messiah? So that you can have a hand-washing ritual to show how godly you are? No wonder Jesus is incensed and says their doctrines are really just the commandments of men. But it's important you don't think that there's no such thing as defilement. Verse 14 through 23 is concerned that you understand the nature of true defilement. And Jesus, in these verses, after this very spicy exchange with the Pharisees that was personal, Pharisees v. Jesus, with the crowds kind of backing off and the disciples going, Jesus, stand up for us. And the Pharisees pointing Not at the disciples, but at Jesus, your disciples, and Jesus saying, you hypocrites. And so the crowd has backed off somewhat for Jesus to have this exchange with the Pharisees. The disciples are going, hiding behind Jesus, right? They're just like, we're we're with him, kind of, but we have no idea what's going on. And then after this terse exchange neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men, uh, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. Jesus said that. And then he sees the disciples, the crowd, the Pharisees, and Jesus does something so important. He turns his attention from his enemies, those who oppose him, And he looks at all these people, all the people who'd been benefiting from listening to his teaching, all the people who had eaten miraculous bread that he provided, all these people who were wondering what the next great miraculous act was, some of these people who'd had a withered up hand now made whole, some of these people who are holding their precious little daughter who had died, but Jesus made her alive. These are the kind of people that are following Jesus in the larger group of his disciples. And Jesus's concern switches from the people who are criticizing him and his disciples to the Jewish people at large so that they would understand that he knows the kind of pressure of bad religion. He knows what kind of bad treatment they've received. He knows that they have been the ones who've been the object of this. They were the ones doing the hand-washing ritual every single meal because these are people who wanted to honor God. They wanted to please him. They wanted to be ready for the Messiah to come. So Jesus turns his attention to the crowd. And verse 14 says, he calls them. He calls the crowd And he says something not to the Pharisees and not to his inner group of disciples at this moment, but to everyone that he can reach with the sound of his voice, to the massive crowds who have benefited from his teaching thus far, but have 
been interrupted by the Pharisees getting between Jesus and the crowds. So Jesus, with his rebuke, disperses the Pharisees and with his attention, turns his voice to the crowds and says to them, listen to me. It's like a listen, listen, double listen. Listen and hear me, all of you, and understand. He's also going to say, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear, verse 16. Jesus is concerned, as he was at the end of the last chapter, he's concerned about the people being shepherdless, exploited by bad religion. And he wants you to listen to him, to understand him. And he's going to talk to all of them and all of you about what defilement is really about. Because the issue isn't that there's no such thing as defilement. Jesus didn't pass out ham sandwiches to the kosher Jews at the end of this scene. That's not the immediate application, though Mark is is very interested in going there. You'll see that in a second. In the moment, Jesus is concerned about these people being enslaved to a false understanding of what makes a person dirty, defiled, and unclean. And again, the answer is not that there's no such thing as defilement. And I think that's where we need to start. Jesus says in verse 15, there's nothing outside a person which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of a person are what defile a person. Before we can understand the inside-outside ingestion nature of defilement, because that's the whole speech to the crowd. The whole thing he says to the crowd before he makes the, the aside to the disciples in the house, which is a typical Markan explanatory moment in verse 17, the, the, he simply just says something to the crowd that they would have heard with all of their tradition, with all of their religion in their mind. He said, nothing outside of a man can defile him if it goes into him, but the things that proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And with that, they would have heard the word defile. And you have to understand how serious defilement is. Desecration. Being impure, to be dishonored, to be polluted. That's the concept that they knew about, but they didn't understand how it worked. So what does it mean to be defiled, biblically speaking? Well, probably a a fun field trip to Leviticus would help. So go there with me for a second. Keep a finger in Mark. I won't keep you long in Leviticus. I know better than that. Go to Leviticus chapter 10. It's at the beginning of your Bible, those first five books. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And if you could find Leviticus chapter 10, and then go even earlier to Leviticus chapter 5. (laughs) Don't worry, we'll go back to 10. I just need to let you hear the language of Torah, the law of the instruction. Leviticus chapter 5 has stuff about the the law of guilt offerings. Verse 2 is a good example. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean cattle or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Verse 3, or if he touches human uncleanness or whatever sort of his uncleanness may be with which he becomes unclean and it's hidden from him, then he comes to know it, he'll be guilty. You can keep reading it. It says in verse 4, if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips or to do evil or to do good in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly from, with an oath and it's hidden from him, then he comes to know it, he'll be guilty in one of these things. It's all leading up, and, and there's lots of these, to guilt offerings. And Yahweh explains to Moses that these guilty people, these unclean people, can present an offering to the Lord, a, a ram without defect from the flock, a guilt offering, and the priest can make atonement before Yahweh. Verse 7 of chapter 6 And he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. Look at chapter 7, Leviticus chapter 7, verse 21. When anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness, an unclean animal, or any unclean detestable thing, and eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings which belong to Yahweh, that person shall be cut off from the people. I mean, the rules keep going, explaining the priest's position in the offerings. Moses is supposed to bring all this instruction to the people, what animals they can eat and can't eat, what offerings are acceptable, which are unacceptable. Switch over to Leviticus chapter 10. Keep going. In Leviticus chapter 10, there's an example of of two sons of Aaron who are priests, they do worship wrong, they offer something called strange fire, which originally wasn't an anti-charismatic conference, it was something in Leviticus chapter 10, and they were profane in their offering, and look what happens in verse 10, after... Nadab and Abihu are killed for their profane offering. God speaks to Aaron in verse 8 and talks about what the priests are to be, verse 10. It's to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, between the unclean and the clean. And so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which Yahweh has spoken to them through Moses. You can go forward to Leviticus 22 for a moment. More rules for priests are listed here. 
Verse 3 says, Say to them, If any man among all your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy gifts which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am Yahweh. I mean, these examples just keep piling up, and you can find them all over the Torah, uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 19, if you go forward one book. We're still on a field trip. The bus hasn't gone off a cliff yet. Numbers 19, verse 13 says, Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who's died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of Yahweh, and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. Verse 20 of Leviticus 19 says, but the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall cut off from the midst of the assembly because he's defiled the sanctuary of Yahweh. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So what have we seen so far? We've seen there's lots of ways for people, I just showed you a few, to become defiled. And then there's ways for them to be pure again through offerings, through sprinklings, through rituals. And then there's priests, and the priests have ways where they can become defiled or cut off or desecrated or dishonored or polluted. And in this verse, in Numbers 19, we start to see that that even God's house, the temple, can be defiled, and the temple needs to be cleansed in certain instances. There's examples of this in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Malachi, And so priests can be defiled, and people can be defiled, and and the temple gets defiled. And in in 2 Chronicles 29, there's a whole story about how the priests are trying to figure out how to cleanse the temple because they have let uh, things slide in Israel for so long. And maybe you're thinking, okay, I get it. Like in the Old Testament, there was defilement. But how does this connect to what Jesus was saying, and what does this have to do with me? Well, you need to understand that Jesus isn't denying the existence of defilement. He's telling you what its origin is, what its source is. Because you can't throw out defilement. I mean, the New Testament is perfectly clear in 1 Corinthians 6.18 that sexual sin defiles a person. That's today. You can be defiled 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Idolatry in the Old Testament and the New Testament is still something that God considers defiling. And that's because every single sin and evil desecrates, dishonors, and makes a person impure. You see, the issue with defilement is that As long as there is a holy God and sinful people, there will be defilement. Imagine that you got the email. You're living on an army base in Hawaii this week. Not a bad gig if you can get it. And this happened. The soldiers are living on the army base and they get the email from .gov, whatever, And it says, hey, you're all moving out. Do not take a shower. Do not 
boil water, do not cook with water, don't touch the water, get, get out. I mean, you're in Hawaii. Nothing's defiled in Hawaii, you'd think. But they get this email saying that they're moving out of the base because in the water on this, this army base, they detected significant amounts of petroleum and gasoline in the water. You can't just cook that out. You can't just chug it and grit your teeth. You can't use your, como se dice, Brita? Brita? Rita? Brita, Brita. Como se dice, Brita. The Brita ain't going to do it. They've got something seriously wrong with the water. And so they emailed all the army people and all their families and they got to move off the base and they got to bring in all this bottled water to provide for all these people. They weren't supposed to take a shower in it. They weren't supposed to touch it because the water had become polluted. I mean, that's what happens. Clean water becomes unacceptable when something pollutes it, defiles it, makes it impure. See, Jesus isn't denying, go back to Mark chapter 7, that there is no such thing as defilement. Lepers were defiled. Pork was defiled. Dead bodies were defiled. Menstruating women were defiled. All the things that we've seen in Mark so far that Jesus has touched and interacted with are defiling. Why? Because everybody's a sinner. Everyone is sinful and dishonored and impure and desecrated and polluted. All of us. And Jesus needs the crowd to understand how it's gotten that way. Because the Pharisees have flipped things over so that they don't understand anymore. They've actually come to think, if I wash this bowl in the right way, it will be acceptable to God. If I pour water on my hands three times a day before I eat, I'll be acceptable to God. If I go to the marketplace and then take this little ritual bath thing, I'll be acceptable to God. If I pray certain prayers that they've taught me to pray, I'll be acceptable to God. If I join up with the Pharisees and and support their political agenda and, and do all the list of stuff they tell me to do, if I do all these things about the Sabbath, then I'll be acceptable to God. And Jesus isn't telling them, hey, don't worry about it. You're not defiled. Everything's cool. You've got a good heart. He's saying, you don't understand how bad it is. If you honestly think that sprinkling a dish can make you acceptable to God, you've missed the point completely. If you think for a moment that rituals can correct the deep crack in the foundation of the human heart, then you don't understand how serious defilement is. And so Jesus says, listen to me, everyone, and understand. His urgent appeal is that tradition has overstepped Scripture, and that just like the Pharisees were washing the inside of cups and bowls and kettles and beds and everything else, how much more do these people need to understand that we need to take a careful look at the inside? The inside. This isn't about 
the outside first, but it's inside first. And interestingly, after he just simply tells that to all the people in the crowd, he takes his disciples inside the house, verse 17. And as soon as they get in, the disciples can't get their question out quick enough. And they just basically say, like, what meaneth this? They call it a parable. And you know parables, sowing of the seed, uh, the good Samaritan. This one's not like that because this was just a quick story about inside-outside defilement. It comes from inside, not from what you eat. And so the word parable, you could also take it as, as a riddle. Maybe that's closer to how you'd understand a story like this one. They're just missing it because they know that there's such a thing as defilement. And they know that there's things they're not allowed to eat as observant Jews. And there's things that they're not allowed to do as observant Jews. There are commands from God. Jesus, what are you saying? And so he explains it to his most intimate group of followers in more detail. And Mark is super interested. The gospel writer is super interested in this because it's, it, it really matters to him. Writing, you know, a hundred years later, it, it, not a hundred, but a generation later, he, he's, he's trying to really see the contemporary relevance of this. And similarly, I want you to see it as well. For, for Mark, it had to do with all these Gentiles and Jews coming together. Like, what are we supposed to make them eat? Do they have to be circumcised? What, what are the rules? And Mark is, is ready to interrupt this story and does in the parenthesis in verse 19, saying, thus he declared all foods unclean. Mark was done with the kosher stuff. And so he's applying it right away. But there's a deeper application happening that's relevant to all of us that helps us understand what it is that makes us defiled. And I'm telling you, the vast majority of religious people do not understand this because they think defilement comes from the world around us. Bad friends, ladies wearing pants, rock and roll, movies, booze, manigari o kayo, whatever. It's all the stuff, you know, that pollutes my family. And so I put them on the sprinter bus and I protect them with home education. That's how people think. They think like, I got I to gotta build some walls to, to protect this, this people. But that's not hearing what Jesus is saying. I mean, J.C. Ryle, 1860, something like that. It says in the back usually. Come on, J.C. Ryle. 1816 to 1900. Yeah, I'm in there. I'm in the range. J.C. Ryle, writing in the 1860s on this passage in Mark, says this. The common arguments against public school education appear to me based on forgetfulness of our Lord's teaching about the heart. 
Unquestionably, there are many evils in public schools, however carefully conducted. It must needs be so. We must expect it. It is no less true that there are great dangers in private education and dangers of their kind quite as formidable as any which beset a boy at public school. Of course, no universal rule can be laid down. Regard must be had to individual character and temperament. But to suppose, as some seem to do, that boys educated at public schools must turn out ill and boys educated at home must turn out well is surely not wise. It is forgetting our Lord's doctrine that the heart is the principal source of evil. Without a change of heart, a boy may be kept at home and yet learn all manner of sin. J.C. Ryle? It's 1860. I didn't even know they invented homeschool in 1860. That's a footnote in J.C. Ryle. And this isn't a rant against whatever form of education you prefer. I don't care if you learn upside down in a pyramid. That's the weirdest form of education I could just think of. Learn in the kitchen, learn at poly, uh, go to liberal Christian school, go to conservative Christian school. Uh, that's, That's not even the issue, but it's a sign in many cases of people who have misunderstood where defilement comes from. So listen to Jesus's answer. Verse 18, first a subtle rebuke for the disciples. Are you also lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile him? Now, buckle up because Jesus is going to use some lavatory terminology, verse 19, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. That's literally a potty word right there. That's like talking about the lavatory, the bathroom. He says food isn't what makes you defiled because food is physical. It goes to the stomach, and then once it's done in the stomach, out. Okay? No need to extrapolate. Please notice he says it doesn't go into the heart. Now, because you are modern man, you think, well, of course it doesn't do in the heart. The heart's not part of the digestive system. It's finals this week, and I know that. (laughs) The heart, in Jesus' terminology, yes, they knew you had a pumping blood thing that had a heart. Anyone that lives in a culture where you had to kill animals understands how a heart works. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the cardiovascular system. He's saying the food that you eat doesn't go into your soul, your spiritual side. The heart was the seat of affection. The heart was who you truly are. The heart reflects your loves and your motivation. And ham sandwiches don't go in your heart. I mean, now we know because of cholesterol that they do. But again, you're mixing up the kinds of hearts. Jesus is trying to make a delineation between the physical and the spiritual when it comes to defilement. And here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Jesus is not saying what some of you want him to say. Jesus is not getting stuck on the regulations. That would be missing the point. Jesus doesn't get stuck on the, revel, re, the, the, the issues of eating and not eating. He doesn't talk about, can you eat a hamster? Can you eat ham? Can you eat eels? Can you eat eggs? Should you boil them? Should you bake them? Uh, is a porcupine delicious? That is not what Jesus is going to get into here. 
He is making a difference between thinking physically and superficially and missing the deeper reality of who you are has everything to do with your heart, your motives, your love, and your affections. Jesus is not doing what Plato and his followers did, which is to say that physical is bad and spiritual is good. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body. All that matters is your soul. That's also not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, let me go a little bit more. He's not saying, you know, all that matters is the heart. So listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. He's not saying like your true self is is within. You just got to get down to that, you know, the heart of what you really want. Let your heart guide you. That's not what he's saying either. He's saying both good and bad don't come from the physical. They come from deep within. They have a spiritual source. There is a well of motives within you from your birth that is poisoned from the start. And the purity laws of the Old Testament and the defilement regulations of God's word all were pointing to that deeper reality. So rather than going deeper in the outside stuff, which is the bull washing and the hand rituals and the work rules on Sunday, they went the wrong direction with it. All that stuff was supposed to expose that the heart was wicked and incurable and lost apart from the grace of God. That the heart, the human's true self, our spiritual self needs to be cleansed. Not the bowls we eat off of, not the hands that we worship with. All of that is dirty and it is defiled. And the reason it's dirty and defiled is because our hearts are dirty and defiled. The foundation is cracked at the very center of this thing. The purity laws were just signposts and shadows pointing to the need for a greater reality and substance that Jesus was ushering in. And that heart, that center of human propensities and our will and our motives and our desires and our appetites is the real battleground here. That's why you must check your heart. Look at what Jesus says, verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed. And now you have one of these massive lists. And let me just give you a quick introduction to it. There are six words followed by six more words. The first six words are plural. The last six words are singular. But there's more to it than that. The first six words are are outside deeds that you do. And the second six words are motives of the heart. Look at the six deeds that Jesus says. Come from a sinful heart. First off, it's one that covers everything. Evil thoughts. You certainly remember, even in your childhood, struggling with an evil thought. 
encountering a thought that you knew was bad and your conscience yelled up within you. An alarm went off because of evil thoughts. All of that was was a, was a sign, like a thermometer can tell when you have a, a fever. Those evil thoughts are a reminder that your heart is evil. He talks about fornications and thefts. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. So the evil thoughts is the, the overarching. The next deed that you do is, is fornication. It's the junk drawer word in the New Testament, pornea. It's for all sexual immorality. Anything outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, as God designed human sexuality, is considered fornication. Where does it come from? It certainly doesn't come from love. It doesn't come from purity. It comes from defiling sin and lust. The next word is theft, taking something that doesn't belong to you. Uh, that's rooted in the heart. It's not just burglary or larceny. It's, it's covetousness. And then there's murder on the list. And, and you know where that comes. It comes from a heart of evil and hatred. And then the word adulteries. That's the, the destruction of society, starting with this most fundamental covenantal commitment between a man and his bride. These great evils, all of us are aware of them, evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries are are all things that find their origin in the bent and depraved conditions of a fallen human heart. Deeds of coveting and wickedness are the sixth thing on the list. It's desiring what is not yours and desiring what you should not have. And then Jesus talks about the conditions of the heart with these words that are singular, these words that are motivational. Deceit, that's lying, not telling the truth, covering up the truth. Sensuality, that's lust. Envy, that's an evil desire. Slander, that's talking bad about other people. Pride, that's exalting yourself and thinking too highly of yourself. And foolishness is not you being dumb or stupid. Foolishness is godlessness in the Bible. The fool says in his heart there is no God. I mean, let that list just wash over you because you know what it is? Verse 21 and 22, it's my memoir. It's your biography. This is who you are by default. You were born with this kind of proclivity. That's incredible, isn't it? And Jesus just brings it home by saying, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus, in this private audience with his disciples, accentuates the reality that the human heart, according to the prophet Jeremiah, is desperately sick. Desperately sick. And as he exposes the sinfulness of 
the human heart. He's showing you something that you have heard over and over again. But are you aware of this reality? No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans chapter 3. And then verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friend, every one of us is defiled. Every one of us is unacceptable to God, impure before God, and education can't fix fix it, and culture can't fix it, and society can't fix it, and all those things, sure, they can make it worse, but could it be more worse than completely depraved, alienated from God, and hating him in our hearts? Because that is our natural Default position, C.S. Lewis says it this way, it's our permanent and permanently horrified perception of one's natural corruption. And we are corrupt. And then Jesus goes and talks to a Syrophoenician woman. But the answer isn't really there either. And then Jesus feeds 4,000 And the answer isn't really there either. Because Jesus keeps healing and cleansing and and forgiving, but the people are going to keep getting sick and dying and sinning. And so the only hope we have as defiled people is to recognize that what we desperately need is a true and lasting change from the heart. We need our defilement removed. And the way that Jesus will remove our defilement is the point of Mark's gospel. That at the cross, Jesus took all our sin and defilement and impurity and desecration and dishonor and pollution on himself and divine judgment fell on him. You cannot transfer your sin to Jesus without transferring the penalty of your sin on Jesus. And sin and its punishment were both put on the Lord Jesus Christ on the defiling cross. Jesus was made a satisfaction, a propitiation for our sins towards God. He gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God for our sins. You see, the death of Christ on the cross was the death of defilement, the death of curse. It's why Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So all that curse, all that defilement in the Old Testament, and all that sin that is the reality of our hearts before God is taken from us on a spiritual level only when we bow the knee before Christ and his cross. 
That's where purity is found. That's where true religion is regained. That's where tradition is put in its rightful place. And Jesus is on the throne and his new kingdom is ushered in and the shadows are put aside and the substance is ours in the gospel. Father, thank you for this word. We want our religion to be true and God-pleasing and not bad and evil and defiled. Touch us, God, with your spirit. Cleanse us and make us whole and pure because Jesus took on the curse for us. Because he was exiled from your presence and glory as he hung on that cross, we can be ushered into your presence and into your glory. And I pray we would never mistake the needful change that must happen inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen.